it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. News headquarters in New York City. Always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. A little bit, a little while, we'll have Mary Otasia O'Grady. She writes for the America's Column on the Wall Street Journal. She is so tapped into Central and South America. And we're going to talk about Iran's influence and China's influence in our own hemisphere. When will we wake up? Uh, Dave McCormick standing by. Dave wants to be the next senator from Pennsylvania. He's within seven points already. Uh, he also wrote a book, Superpower in Peril, a battle plan to renew America. He went to West Point, fought in the, uh, Iraq. He also has worked at Treasury and then went and made millions in the real world and now is giving back and hopefully will be back uh, in Pennsylvania. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Remember when Joe Biden told the American people that his son didn't make any money in China? Well, not only did he lie about his son Hunter making money in China, but it also turns out that $40,000 in laundered China money landed in Joe Biden's bank account. Hunter, Joe, and Jim. The Biden racket is being exposed daily. The question is, is anyone paying attention? Well, we are. And you are. We'll have the latest. Number two. The Houthis are vowing to continue these attacks every day. Missiles, drones. And where is it coming from? Ultimately, Tehran. The Iranian regime is the head of the snake. Yemen, the Houthis are part of this Iranian ring of fire mm-hmm. that surrounds Israel. America is also in this fight. Our bases are being targeted daily in Syria and Iraq seven times since we hit them at the Syrian border. This is the, oh, this coupled with the rise of anti-Semitism at home while we're wrestling over the best way to aid Israel in their multi-front fight. Number one. I love Hamas. I think Hamas. Oh, you love a terrorist organization. Interesting. Harvard Square, everyone. That's not anti-Semitism? They should be all exterminated. Every single one of them. And their kids, their mothers, their children. Just like Hitler Thank you for proving our point. Have a lovely night. Racist in Harvard. See, uh, that's what's going on here, uh, and that's what's happening in this country. Israel at war. Number of IDF casualties now at 18 after heavy fighting on the ground. We need to find 242 hostages, get innocents out of Gaza, about 500 are American, and win the propaganda war as the world pushes for a ceasefire, which would be a disaster, let alone the disaster which is our college campuses today. Uh, Dave McCormick, uh, you are... I'm not sure where you're located. I know you're working in Pennsylvania to convince them to send you to Washington. Uh, Dave, what do you think, first off, about this possible multi-front war that Israel's fighting right now? Hey, Brian, how are you? Great. Um, listen, this is, a, this is a, a, a scary time. I can't remember my adult life. And I and remember I was a soldier during the Cold War. I can't remember a time when America had so many uh, threats. Uh, and adversaries uh, testing it and challenging it. I I really do believe this is the consequence of weak leadership on the part of of Joe Biden. And we see that in uh, with Russia's uh, aggression, Ukraine, we see it with China. But but of course, in the moment, we see that with what's happening with Hamas and its uh, barbaric attack into Israel and then Hezbollah on the 
on the north and uh, and Iran being the underwriter of terror based on the on the terrible uh, deal that uh, Barack Obama and, and Joe Biden did. So that's the, the lay of the land. And, you know, as a soldier who deployed to Iraq 33 years ago, I would have never imagined that uh, we'd be sending U.S. troops as we are now with the possibility, uh, no, not the promise, but the possibility of of getting engaged in the region. It's a, it's a very scary moment. So look, you know the gravity of this situation. War is not a theory to you. It's not a game of Stratego. You know what it's like. You go to West Point. You study it. Uh, so I know you don't take this lightly, but I just believe that our guys are sitting there, 900 in Syria, 2,100, uh, 2,500 over in Iraq. We got a lot in Kuwait, too, who are beginning to get rocketed. And now we have, you know, obviously the big base in Qatar, and our guys can't respond. I got this, right. got this letter, long form, through the mail uh, from somebody in my, who lives in my neighborhood. says, my son, along with several other servicemen whom he was responsible for, was sent to Al-Assad Air Base September 2023, which is a few weeks ago. It was supposed to be part of just a basic deployment. Little did they know they're being rocketed on a, da- on a daily basis. They have no business being there. They're under constant fire. Uh, please tell everybody that this is you're not getting the true story. They are not allowed to fight back. We were just informed that their base uh, uh, in Kuwait had been uh, some missile action, too. This is only going to get worse. What about the strategy of only hitting back twice after 27 yeah. attacks since October 7th? Dave, can you yeah. sign off on that? No, it's it's uh, but it is the failure of deterrence and it's the failure of leadership. This didn't start on October seventh. This started with um, the appeasement of Iran, uh, which essentially gave Iran the money to support these terrorists around the region. But then on top of that, uh, since the Biden administration took office, there's been over I don't know about the last two weeks how much that's added, but there were 83 attacks without really reprisal, and so as a consequence. When it's like what what we learned on the playground, Brian. If if uh, the bully thinks you're weak, they're going to push you around, and we've lost deterrence. So we have to reassert deterrence. What does that mean? Um, the adversaries need to know that if they hit us, we're going to hit them ten times harder. They need to know that there's a cost uh, for this barbaric behavior directed against American soldiers, and only when we've reestablished deterrence. Will we start to see this kind of uh, uh, these kind of attacks on Americans uh, subside? So, so Dave, the thing that's different about the playground usually the bully's bigger. We're actually bigger. We're the Goliath, yeah. right? So, yeah, why don't we act like it? Why are we afraid to act like it? Where we give Ukraine weapons, but we don't want to give them too many weapons and really aggravate Russia. Why don't we act like a superpower? We're not the bullies. We're the good guys. Do these guys need a self-esteem course? Yeah, this is uh, this is leadership. You know, it's the basic thing you learn at West Point, which is uh, people will follow, people will respect strength, but when you lead, and and that's what uh, President Biden's failed to do. Frankly, that's what my opponent Bob Casey has failed to do, which is to assert American leadership around the world. In the case of Ukraine, um, that's a perfect example where had the uh, uh, Biden administration acted decisively in the beginning. Um, and given uh, the Ukrainians what they needed, that they would have had a much better uh, chance of uh, of getting on the front foot and and defeating uh, Russia. Now we're in a 
World War I kind of stalemate where the outcome is very, very difficult to see. It's the same uh, with Iran. The lack of responding in a tough-minded way to the bad behavior, and, and this is where I think you have to call out President Trump uh, as an example of the opposite. You know, uh, when you take out Soleimani, uh, you set a precedent that, hey, wait a second, don't mess with America. Uh, if you punch us, we're going to punch you 10 times harder. And that's what we've lost. It's one simple word, leadership, and that's what we need to get back. Look, uh, the president got some criticism. Uh, the former president got some criticism when he didn't respond when they took out one of our drones. But he did take out Baghdadi out. He did destroy what would the, the foundation of the caliphate. He also took out 200 Wagner troops who were trying to intimidate us over in Syria. Now we've cut the force down to 900, and they're looking up, and it's like fireworks, hoping missile defense does their job because they're not allowed to essentially leave their base. And we alienated the Kurds with the last administration. So now I like the way President Biden said to Israel, we got your back. And I like the fact that we got a more uh, weaponry for the Iron Dome. But now, all of a sudden, the president sees him bleeding. He's bleeding numbers of, uh, uh, I guess, Arabic voters and Muslims who see him as anti-Muslim. And now he's calling for a pause. Ari Fleischer sees politics in this. Cut seven. Right from the start of this war with Gaza, as soon as Joe Biden called for restraint, as soon as he said $100 million of aid for the people of Gaza, which we all know will get stolen by Hamas, not a penny of it will get through unless Hamas gives it to the people they want to give it to. I came to the conclusion that this has less to do with helping the people of Gaza and more to do with helping the voters of Michigan. So there's a huge Arabic population, uh, Muslim population in Michigan. Do you see politics in this? Oh, oh, absolutely. But what's happening right now is you've seen this huge um, divide in the Democratic Party, and you've seen moral ambiguity rather than in a time of crisis, the, the thing people should expect from their leaders is moral clarity. And, and President Biden, I agree with you, gave uh, uh, appropriate remarks right in the beginning. But you not only have to speak with moral clarity, you have to act with moral clarity. And that's, what's, that's what we're failing on. That's the, that's, of all the things that have happened in the last few weeks, that's the thing that's most disappointing, where you see college presidents, you see college students, you see public officials who have not been able to, in the simplest, clearest terms, call out good versus bad, evil. Um, in its purest form with the attack on Israel on October 7th. And, uh, and that's what I'm afraid is happening now, which is uh, the issue is going to be clouded unless we continue to come back to this whole situation was predicated by an outrageous barbaric attack on Israel. And Israel must defend itself and beyond that cannot live side by side with a terrorist group in Hamas that has made explicit its goal to eradicate Israel. That's not a sustainable position. So Israel must, must do now mm. what it must do to create security on this border. And, uh, and the president needs to stand tall on that, irregardless of the politics associated with it. So you decide, uh, you know, OK, I'll talk about that in a second. Uh, I do want you to you signed off on what Marco Rubio did. And I just talked to him on television 45 minutes ago about denying money to these institutions, these colleges that allow this anti-Semitic behavior to take root and this uh, pro-Hamas, which is a terrorist organization, to gain their support. So you signed off on this. You think that you think that we should pull funding from colleges like this. And you're talking about major Ivy League institutions, major colleges like UCLA. You're for that. Well, um, what, what Marco and I, uh, what Senator Rubio and I uh, proposed, he, he's proposed that second thing. But what we proposed was that we should withdraw the visas 
for those who are visiting America and um, on, on as, as our guests on visas who are then promoting violence, promoting uh, the destruction of Israel, which is which is inconsistent with the privilege of being a visitor to the United States on a visa. And so he and I both have made the case to do that. And uh, in terms of your second point, listen, I think our institutions of higher learning have an absolute responsibility to stand tall with moral clarity. And what's happened with uh, Harvard and Cornell and uh, uh, Penn and all of these places is you've seen the absence of that clarity of leadership. There's been some that have spoken out well, but others have, uh, have, have been horrible in the clarity of their response. And this is uh, what should worry us the most because these are the places mm. that our next generation of leaders are, are, are being born, and uh, they're learning the wrong lessons from this moment of crisis. You know, I think parents got awoken up during the pandemic, and they saw what their kids were learning, and they spoke out. I think they changed things. I hope so. And I think this could well, change we'll, things. We'll see. Uh, I, we'll I, see. Think, I hope so. I think this could change I mean, things, because so many people like you, Dave, are outraged by this. Yeah. Well, absolutely. And, and you know, listen, it, it, it cuts across everything. When you look at those poll numbers, this is before October 7th, and you see that a, a declining number of Americans believe America is special, believe in patriotism, believe America is exceptional. Where are they learning that? They're learning that in our schools where they're not given an appropriate understanding of America's history, America's contribution to the world, and civics and understanding what it means to be American citizenship. Um, are falling uh, by the wayside. And that's why you have this generation of young people who aren't clear on what's right or wrong and what, what America's role in the world really is. Dave McCormick, our guest, he was a U.S. Senate candidate uh, for the Republicans, and he wants to be the next senator from Pennsylvania. You're taking on a name in Pennsylvania that's been known from his dad, Senator Casey, and this Senator Casey Sr. Uh, but I don't hear much of these guys on the national stage, either one, his dad or him. Uh, what makes you think he's more vulnerable uh, than... I guess Fetterman, who emerged on the on the left to to beat Dr. Oz, who beat you in the primary, would make Dave. Yeah. Would you learn the first time that you think you'll be successful this time? Well, this is a moment where we see the you know the 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 world is really in crisis and America's in crisis, and it's a serious time for serious leaders. And uh, and the contrast here in this campaign is with me as as a, a Pennsylvania success story, someone who's served our country in the military and and, and created jobs and served at the highest levels of government against someone who's been a career politician and a rubber stamp for Joe Biden, supporting Joe Biden 98% of the time. So uh, I'm sure Bob Casey's a fine person, but he's just not equipped, has not demonstrated in his 18, 17 years of, of office as a senator that he's willing to do what's necessary to lead and be an independent leader. And so that's the contrast. And certainly when I go across the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, there's a recognition that in the most consequential state in the country, Brian, the state where America was born, uh, the battleground state that will decide the presidency, we have a, a very inconsequential senator. And so Pennsylvanians deserve better, and so does America. So Senator Tuberville was on the yesterday defending what he's doing now, holding back nominations until, uh, until they get in line with this not using federal money to support abortions. A lot of people on the right are upset at him. We have Michael McCall. We have Senator Lindsey Graham, uh, as other senators. How do you stand on this? Well, I, under, I understand uh, why the, the senator from Alabama is doing that, but uh, but I'm 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 opposed. I think that uh, this is a step too far. I think we're in a time of national crisis. Our military is being tested. I think we should 
take every step uh, possible, and the Biden administration's failed at this, to depoliticize our military. And we need to get those key leaders in the right spots because America's at risk. And uh, so I would be in favor of Senator Sullivan and others who are trying to push forward on those right. promotions and the assignments. Real quick, one of the re- people say, well, you're in Connecticut a lot, not in Pennsylvania. You got divorced. You want to be with your kids. But th- that doesn't mean you're not from Pennsylvania. <laughs> well, I got, I've got good Pennsylvania roots. I'm a seventh-generation Pennsylvanian. I grew up there and uh, went away to go to West Point and, and serve, uh, serve the country in, in Iraq. And then I came back to Pennsylvania and, and created a lot of jobs. So I live in Pennsylvania. My folks are in Pennsylvania. My friends are in Pennsylvania. But, but I do – I am divorced, and I do have uh, – my last uh, daughter is finishing high school, and I'm going to go back and mm-hmm. see my daughter and uh, you know let the chips fall where they may. But that's – being a, a great dad is every bit as important as being a great right. senator. Right, and that's not a vulnerability. If you don't like Dave McCormick, pick another reason. That's not a good one. <laughs> Dave McCormick, best yeah, of luck. All right, Brian, thanks for having me. You got it. Back in a moment. It's Brian Kilmeade. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Are you wearing higher heels than Ron DeSantis next week at the debate so you can look taller than him on the stage? <laughs> I don't know. We'll have to we'll have to figure that out. I can tell you, I've always talked about my high heels. I've never, um, you know, hid that from anybody. I've always said, don't wear them if you can't run in them. So we'll see if he can run in them. Uh, it's unbelievable. I guess the Trump camp went after Ron DeSantis says he's wearing lifts in his shoes. I don't see it. I don't even know they have. Do they exist? Allison, what do you think? Well, I do know shoes with lifts exist for men. Um, right. Actually, because my dad was a shorter man, so he'd always wear them. Which is but I, like, I have insoles in my shoes because I have flat feet, flat-ish feet. Flat-ish. But is that, with, is that considered lifts? No, that's just like an insole. Lifts would be like it's – what my dad used to have was like sneakers with like sort of like a fat sole, like – but now okay. I, they're saying, I guess, in his boots, it's a little higher. But all cowboy boots have a little bit of a heel. That's just a cowboy boot. Right. I mean, he's tall. I mean, to me, I don't I don't think his height was ever an issue. I mean, D- Donald Trump's 6'3", I guess. Uh, I don't think he's – I think Vivek, he's as tall as Vivek. But the thing he's, is, let well, him is just Marco address- Rubio too short to be president? But why can't he just address it in a funny way and people would move on? But it's because he has these weird responses to it. It's become – it stays a story. What do you mean by weird? Not weird. Just like maybe he didn't do. Maybe he doesn't have lifts. Then just say it. I don't know. I just feel like if he just like would address it head on instead of tiptoeing around. You it. know what I think the thing is? He's not a silly guy. He's like not. He, he doesn't like to kid around. He wants to just get stuff done. He you does. can't believe he's being asked about it. That makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Israel is a country that has no place on our land. We must remove that country because it constitutes a security, military, and political catastrophe to the Arab and Islamic nation and must be finished. We are not ashamed to say this with full force. We must teach Israel a lesson, and we will do this again and again. 
The Al-Aqsa flood is just the first time and there will be a second, a third, a fourth, because we have the determination, the resolve, and the capabilities to fight. Right. Uh, that, uh, that is a spokesperson for Hamas who's sitting in the safety of probably Qatar, not a military person, who, let's it be clear, we didn't cut it out. He doesn't talk about a two-state solution, doesn't talk about living side by side, doesn't talk about additional aid. He talks about just wiping out, doesn't talk about the, the welfare of the Palestinian people, just talks about wiping out a group of people, the Israeli people. And that's really what Israel is up against. And that's why they can't have a pause uh, and they can't have a ceasefire. Not after that brutal attack and knowing what their intention is. With me right now to talk about that and how it relates to Central and South America is uh, Mary Anastasio O'Grady. She writes for the Americas, uh, a weekly column on politics, economics and business in Latin America and Canada. Uh, Appears every Monday on The Wall Street Journal. Mary, welcome back. Good morning, Brian. Well, uh, Mary, I just think it's important for people to know some of these Hamas Hezbollah like minded people are coming across our southern border. And that attitude is the attitude that Israel has to deal with on a daily basis. And we should know, too, the person behind all of it is Iran. And that the Iran is making their presence known uh, in Central and South America. What has that meant to this region? Yeah, well, I, I, I'm glad that you're paying attention to it, Brian. I mean, um, it's uh, Central South America, but also Mexico, our neighbor here in North America, um, that is worrying me at this point. Um, Iran has made a, um, a project out of uh, making allies in the Western Hemisphere for, you know, more than two decades. Um, you know, they have a very close relationship with Venezuela. They supply weapons to Bolivia. Uh, they have a relationship with Iran and, uh, sorry, uh, with Nicaragua and with Cuba. And, um, you know, just uh, earlier this year, the Iranian foreign minister did a tour of um, those last three countries I just mentioned. Um, so there's very tight relations there. Um, and uh, that should worry us because, you know, there was a time when the Western Hemisphere was working towards democracy. And um, we could count on um, some of these larger countries to be our allies. And that's not the case anymore. So when the president of Mexico took a photo with the Colombia president, with the Cuban leader, uh, with uh, Venezuela's Nicolas Maduro, who's just a despicable human being, destroyed that country, and the Honduras president, you said it was a big middle finger to Joe Biden. Well, Joe Biden had asked Mexico if um, we could set up uh, migrant processing centers in Mexico uh, that would be funded by the U.S. Um, I think, I mean, they didn't use these words, but I think the idea was something along the lines of remain in Mexico that President Trump uh, had agreed and worked with Mexico on so that when migrants arrived at the border, um, rather than overwhelming our uh, border patrol, they would have to wait yeah. and in a timely fashion be processed. And um, basically, uh, Lopez Obrador, the president of Mexico, said no. And instead, he was going to convene a meeting with, um, you know, Latin American leaders. And he chose the ones you just mentioned. Um, and then at the end of the session, and it's interesting because there were 10 countries who were at the meeting, but only six 
uh, presidents, only six heads of state. And, um, you know, there were these these three, which is the Colombian president, who's very anti-Semitic and anti-Israel, uh, and then Nicolas Maduro, the dictator of Venezuela, and the dictator of Cuba. And they had this uh, group photo at the end of the meeting. Um, and they released a document which said, basically, that the migration crisis is uh, the fault of the U.S. embargo on Venezuela, on Cuba and um, the sanctions on Venezuela. When in reality, Venezuela destroyed their own industry. They kicked us exactly. out of Venezuela. They are solely responsible for their collapse. Oh, yeah. I mean, not only did they, um, you know, expropriate uh, oil, uh, property, private property of oil companies, but they've destroyed the infrastructure. And they've done it basically by putting political people in jobs that are technical jobs. So even if you had a big oil company go in there tomorrow, they would have a hard time getting oil out because, yeah. you know, the whole pipeline structure is is degraded. And that is causing hell on our border. We don't know if they're emptying their prisons or they're just people who want the old, their old uh, shot at their old lifestyle. That's why they're coming here, but they got special dispensation. So, Mary, you know the reality of it. The way I understand it is uh, the Mexican presidents get six years, one six-year term. Obrador, who's a socialist, for some reason kind of hit it off with Trump. And I don't know if it was the threats of tariffs, but... They were working well together. I think he was the last world leader to recognize that Trump lost the election. What changed? Well, I, I would say that Lopez Obrador is not as much a socialist ideologically as he is just an authoritarian. He's a person who wants power for himself. He thinks that Mexico was better off when it was a one-party state, and that's what he wants to restore. Um, you know, next year there'll be an election. But if the person that he wants wins, he'll still be pulling the strings from behind. So he's really interested in one-man rule in Mexico. And, you know, President Trump was very transactional. So um, they could trade what their interests were, and uh, that's how they got along. And, um, you know, I think that uh, with in the case of Joe Biden— um, Lopez Obrador doesn't see anything to gain from uh, going along with what Joe Biden wants. And um, and he he sees more opportunity in taking the side of these autocrats and dictators in the region um, because the volume of migrants. I mean, there are so many people. I wrote a column about four weeks ago. Uh, where we estimated that about 500,000 people will come through the Darien Gap from Colombia uh, in this calendar year. And actually, Petro's government, um, governors in that state are facilitating that movement. So basically, they wow. have weaponized yes. they have weaponized migration, and they are using that weapon to try to trade things with Joe Biden. And and they don't they're not worried about Joe Biden. They might have been a little bit more worried about Donald Trump, what he would do in response. We're talking to Mary Anastasia O'Grady of The Wall Street Journal, who's an expert in this region. Uh, Mary, I want you to hear what this caravan leader told our cameras in Mexico. He's got thousands behind him, and he said this. Joe Biden administration has uh, has lost the ball, had lost the power, and, and America has has not been paying attention to what's happening. Mexico is being uh, used, usually ganging up with all the countries to make sure that all this immigration goes straight into the United States, and, and that's, that's what it is. Every country has been just providing the rights 
charging them 20 30 or 40 dollars and then just pushing them in pushing them in all the way to the mexican border where's the american intelligence don't they know that the, all the countries are conspiring against the united states to make sure they have this crisis this is not this is not an international relations expert that's a caravan leader says how stupid are you america and yeah. and joe biden well, there's two things to keep in mind here. I think the governments themselves are weaponizing this. And as I mentioned, um, the, for example, the governor of Choco, which is the most northern Colombian state, um, is, is on video talking about how they're facilitating the movement of these humans into uh, the Darien Gap, the jungle there, uh, just south of Panama. Um, but let's keep in mind also that um, the people who are actually doing this work all the way up the, the isthmus are running businesses, and there's a lot of money. There's a huge amount of money because they charge people to basically, you know, act as guides or to shepherd them. Um, you know, there's a lot of crime, but there's also uh, an organized crime unit that is charged with basically so-called protecting them and delivering them to the border. So there's a big business going on here um, outside of what these governments want to do. And the other thing that we have to keep in mind, Brian, and I, I feel very strongly about this, is the majority of these people want to live in America just like our grandparents did. And um, and why do they come? They come because they think there's a very high probability that they're going to get across the border. And I explained this in a column a couple of weeks ago. Um, statistically, if you look at the numbers and who gets in, there's about a 75 percent chance that you're going to get across the border. Now, when you get across the border, you're probably going to get a piece of paper that says show up in court in five years. Yeah. But that's OK with you. Yeah, that's okay. You can in those five years you can, you know, start earning dollars and, and save them and, you know, do all the things that people want to do when they're poor and they want to climb up the ladder. So until the Congress and you know, the Republicans have also a lot of responsibility in this until Congress does something about the asylum law, which allow, which forces Border Patrol to give them these interviews and then assign them, you know, OK, you have credible fear and that bar is not very high. This is not going to change because if you are living in a very poor circumstances and you have a 75 percent chance to get into the promised land, you're going to go for it, I think. And, you know, a lot of them know family that are already here. Mm -hmm. The family tells them, look, there's a job for you in this restaurant or that restaurant. Or So they have an idea. They're not just uh, coming here to live off welfare. They want to work, save in dollars. Uh, in a place that has a rule of law and and some security and so forth. So we have to change the asylum law because, you know, these people are economic migrants. And if they are let in because of some low bar of, you know, credible fear, they're just going to keep coming. There's Absolutely. Who would not want to live here, Mary? Who would not want to live here? The asylum law has to change. Yeah. <laughs> the I mean, asylum the law has to change. And I fault both parties for for creating this situation because it's like hanging a big giant carrot right at the border and and people are attracted to that right uh but one i think the last year of trump's administration four hundred and fifty thousand came across and now we're at 2.7 or actually 3.2 million have come across and we're not even at yeah, the end of the year that's a combination i would say of you know, the way uh, Alejandro Mayorkas has handled the border, but also the fact that 
it's natural that once people say, oh, look, you can get across, more and more are going to come. That's just natural. I remember so the 20,000 Marines we, that the Mexicans you know, put on their southern border. Until you start to turn people away at the border so that they see this whole effort that they made to make this whole long migration is in is fruitless, until that starts to happen, they're going to keep coming. And we got to say it doesn't seem to bother this administration, which is nuts because it's overwhelming cities, many of which are run by almost all of which are run by Democrats. So I don't even see the political yes. advantage anymore. So it and does the, seem like the, the Democrats will pay for this in some way. I, I agree with you. I think they will. And if some things but start blowing up because it's Hezbollah and fix- Hamas, uh, yeah, they'll never be forgiven. Uh, oh, I agree with you. Yeah, that's a that's an added danger on top of everything else. But until we fix the asylum law so that people can actually be turned away at the border and told, by the way, I'm very pro-immigrant. So, you know, go back home, go to your consulate, go to your embassy and apply for coming to the U.S. in a legal manner and then, you know, put more resources into allowing that to happen so that people who do want to migrate, we need immigrants. So people who do want to immigrate will come in an orderly way, and we know who's here. All right. Uh, thanks so much, Mary. Appreciate it. And hopefully people Thank will you, be Brian. alarmed, maybe the next administration, how important Central and South America is. You cannot ignore it. Uh, Thank you, Brian. You got it. Uh, when we come back, I'll take your calls. I also see your contacts. Got a brand-new website. We're backed up for a little bit with comments, but now I'm seeing them all. I'm getting them all. I'll try to respond to them next. And if you want to get on the phone, great, one 408-7669. Giving you everything you need to know. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Breaking news. Unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Here's the story. I'm going to do the story even quicker than you just did it. Two brothers loan each other money. They pay it back. Not in office. End of story. One brother gives one brother money. The other brother pays it back. No one is elected at all. They're both private citizens. What are we talking about? Yeah. Okay. Oh, well, it could be this. It could be that. We think it's this. We think that. No evidence. We're back to the same thing. Listen, James, this is your friend Jared talking to you. Don't make me continue to embarrass you in committee. I mean, I'll I'll bring the board again. I'll start drawing things. Okay, don't make don't make me do it. Like I, I actually feel bad when I make you look like a fool. So that is Josh Moskowitz, a Democrat. Josh, right? Or Jared, Jared uh, Moskowitz, and he says it's no big deal that James Biden gave two hundred thousand dollars to Joe Biden to pay off his beach house. Where did he get the money from? That's the key. Bank records show they got the money from China. Does that bother you at all that we don't know where business, where money is coming from, from other countries? When you don't register as a foreign agent, you have shell companies to mask where this money is coming in, where it's going out. You collapse them before we know who gave them. If you if you get $200,000 right now, if you and I listening to you right now, you have to declare that on your taxes. It's got to come in from somewhere, James. What would you do? Well, Hunter, what did you do? Why are you paying off your grandkids with money from China, Ukraine, Kazakhstan, and beyond? Why, Joe Biden, did you use 85,000 emails that put Hunter with an alias email on your interactions when you were in vice president, 85,000 with Ukraine? Why is that not important? And you say you want to check. 
You want to check for a guy. You want to find out where the checks are. That's why it's because you don't believe that Joe Biden did anything. Where's the money? Joe Biden taunted people who asked him questions and said, well, I got all this money. Where is it? Well, there it is. There's $200,000 of it. Where did it come from? What did James Biden do? The guy's got no international business experience. That's why you had to bring uh, Tony Bobulinski in to begin with. And these guys were all cashing in on the Biden name and influence. Joe Biden was the package. We heard that from the people involved with it. So how could you not be curious about that? How does that not bother you? When you find out that there were 40 FBI investigations into the Biden family, they were told to stop in its tracks not to go forward. IRS whistleblowers say there's a lot to look into with Hunter Biden. They said, do not touch the dad. Here's Jason Smith. Cut 21. The two that we're working on right now, but they continue to give us more information and confirm their testimony. As the liberal media attacks them, they want to defend themselves and they've been providing the information. What we have learned is that Joe Biden was not just the brand that the that that they were using to sell all over the country, all over the world. But in fact, he was benefiting from selling it. And if he becomes president, whether he was vice president then, a senator, or he was in between jobs, and he comes back into power and says, I had nothing to do with my son's overseas business dealings, yet he was at the center of it, and he's dealing with other countries that could have him compromised, if it was no big deal, tell people. You want to know where the Donald Trump has golf courses? Scotland. Yeah. Where's he? Saudi Arabia. He's got hotels in Turkey. His name's on them. You could see all this, understand all this, and decide where you vote. Joe Biden was denying everything and looking right in the camera and doing it. From the Fox News radio studios in Midtown Manhattan, it's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Brian Kilmeade Show. We're coming to you from Midtown Manhattan, heard around the country, around the world. So glad you're here. Senator Tim Scott is standing by. He wants to be the next president of the United States. He's going to be on the debate stage, which is great news. And Jordan Belfort at the bottom of the hour. You know, Woeful Wall Street guy, brand new book out. We're going to talk about him, about um, Sam Bankman-Fried. Is this guy going to jail? What exactly did he do? Bitcoin kind of confuses me. Maybe it doesn't you. He's got a book called The Wolf of Investing, my insider's playbook for making a fortune on Wall Street. And uh, he's always compelling interviews, so we look forward to having him in studio. So let's get, before we get to the center, let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Remember when Joe Biden told the American people that his son didn't make any money in China? Well, not only did he lie about his son Hunter making money in China, but it also turns out that $40,000 in laundered China money landed in Joe Biden's bank account. Uh, and maybe more. Hunter, Joe, and Jim, the Biden racket is being exposed daily. The question is, is anyone paying attention? We are, and you are, and we will continue to do this. We'll bring you the latest. Number two. The Houthis are vowing to continue these attacks every day, missiles, drones. And where is it coming from, ultimately? Tehran. The Iranian regime is the head of the snake. Yemen, the Houthis are part of this Iranian ring of fire mm-hmm. that surrounds Israel. Terror expert Eric Stackelback. America is in the fight. Our bases are being targeted in Syria and Iraq seven times since we hit back last weekend. 
the beating back on the uh, beating back of, of of the anti-Semitism at home, especially on our college campuses, has to be a priority. While wrestling over the best way to aid Israel in this multi-front fight. Number one. I love Hamas. I think Hamas. Oh, you love a terrorist organization. Interesting. Harvard Square, everyone. That's not anti-Semitism? They should be all exterminated. Every single one of them. And right. their kids, their mothers, their children. Just Harvard. like Hitler Thank did. you for proving our Save, point. Have a lovely night. Racist in Harvard. Is this unbelievable? Harvard Square. That's the thought pattern of our next generation of elites. Israel at war. The number of IDF casualties now at 18 after heavy fighting on the ground. We need to find now 242 hostages. It looks like we do have a presence there, and we got to get 400 innocent Americans out of Gaza. Uh, we got to get that going. But right now, Hamas says we can't leave. Essentially, that's 400 more hostages. The propaganda war is being lost by Israel and us. Are we even trying? Senator Tim Scott joins us now at this very trying time. Uh, he's looking to get on stage, and I believe you've done that, Senator. Is that true? Yes, sir. I am excited about being on the stage on Wednesday night. I look forward to having a serious conversation about why America must stand by our ally in the Middle East, Israel, and all the other really important topics. But shoulder to shoulder, no daylight is absolutely essential, and we should make our point clear. I hope so. Uh, There's a lot of questions. Now we have the Secretary of State Blinken going over to the region, and the president, after being yelled at by a rabbi at an event in Minnesota, seems to be now all for a pause for the Israelis. I'm for, I don't want one innocent person to die, but is this the right time to pause? Absolutely not. The only, the only right time to pause is after Israel has won the war. You cannot let the kind of atrocity, the attempt of genocide, go unanswered. Sitting down with the Ambassador Herzog from Israel, proportional response is the elimination of Hamas. Brian, it's the only thing that matters today as it relates to that war. So this guy, Ghazi Hamad, is the uh, Hamas official. He's the spokesperson. He's been interviewed by our own Trey Yinks before. And believe it or not, is considered one of the so-called moderates in the political wing of Hamas. Listen to what he said about the October 7th attack, cut for. Israel is a country that has no place on our land. We must remove that country because it constitutes a security, military, and political catastrophe to the Arab and Islamic nation and must be finished. We are not ashamed to say this with full force. We must teach Israel a lesson, and we will do this again and again. The Al-Aqsa flood is just the first time, and there will be a second, a third, a fourth, because we have the determination, the resolve, and the capabilities to fight. Does that sound like a group of people that wants to talk about a two-state solution? Listen, they turned down the two-state solution as early as 2000. We know what they actually want is the elimination of Israel. And the only thing they will understand is overwhelming force power and the elimination of Hamas. That is the language we must speak in. I've said it several times, Brian, but I think it's important to highlight. Romans 13.4 reminds us to those who do evil, they should experience the wrath of God. It is time for America to back Israel for the elimination of a terrorist threat on their border. It is essential that that happens immediately. So that is one of our main uh, issues. But the other one, and I've, I've read this be last hour, 
I've gotten now uh, about 10 different emails, and this letter came in regular mail about people serving overseas right now in the Middle East, and they thought they would be in a relatively calm situation. Then their bases are getting rocketed regularly, including one even in Kuwait. There's been 27 unanswered attacks, over 100 since President Biden took office. Senator, this is totally irresponsible to let let our guys be sitting ducks and just playing a, having missile defense be our only defense, isn't it? Absolutely. One of the things Americans understand that the government does not is appeasement is not a strategy. Appeasement is making yourself a larger target. The only way to respond to 100 attacks with fewer than six or seven responses from this administration is to up the ante and to target the source of these attacks, which would include whoever the perpetrator is and their funder. We have to put Iran on notice if we want to see these attacks go away. It's it's not only Yemen, but we're talking about the forces around Israel are sending a clear message. And you heard it from the, air quote, moderate within Hamas. The elimination of Israel and the second step is to eliminate all Jews on the planet, six million being an American in America, and then finally, it's the Western civilization that they hate next. If Israel is the little Satan, they consider America the big Satan. If we are not preparing, we are woeful and derelict in our duties. And I'm talking about the President of the United States. He should be responding in kind. Every single attack should invite two responses from America. That will eliminate the attacks and the atrocities that they are trying to bring upon Israel and America. So Senator Tim Scott, our guest, I know you know his voice, but you also know that Vivek Ramaswamy is also going to be on the stage. He did a debate with Ro Kahana uh, yesterday, and here's what he said about the Middle East. Cut nine. I could care less about leading in the Middle East. I care more about protecting Americans right here at home. We actually screwed up. We screwed this one up. And here's something that both parties need to own up to. You won't hear this from the media, but they won't tell you I'm wrong about it either. One of the catalysts for what happened was the U.S., led by Biden, but Republican senators along with them, leading discussions about nuclear technology transferred to Saudi Arabia, badly upsetting what is an uncomfortable but at least existent balance of power in the Middle East. The fact that that happened this summer, and then October 7th, you have an attack you haven't seen in 50 years on Israel when it's in the middle of those discussions with Saudi Arabia. We Do you think that had anything to do with anything? I don't know what he's talking about most of the time, to be honest with you. So the truth of the matter is a simple one, that we should always be loyal to our allies and lethal to our common adversaries. The one thing that, that unfortunately Ramaswamy does very consistently is to back away from Israel. We should stand shoulder to shoulder. We have a responsibility, an obligation, and an opportunity to regain the high ground in this world. We are the city on the hill, which means that if you attack America or our allies, we should be unrelenting in our response until the problem is eliminated. What he's talking about is unrelated consistently. There is an objective in the Middle East to make Israel having a more normalized relationship through the Abraham Accords. We thank God for the success of the Abraham Accords. But we should remember one thing above all. 
The objective of Iran and their proxies is not a conversation about negotiation. It's only about elimination. Anyone who doesn't mm. understand that fact, they are misguided, misled, and just wrong. So promotions and nominations have been held up in the Senate, your full-time job by Tommy Tumberville of, uh, of Alabama. He says, not until you get straight on abortion. I don't want to be having using federal money to have people travel to other states to have abortion if they're in the military. That's predominantly his view. Uh, a lot of people don't agree that our Republicans listen. Cut 29. These are the people who are kicking in doors in Fallujah, shooting terrorists in the face. And we have people saying they're desk jockeys and they're not warriors. That's just ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And it's insulting. The Chinese admirals and their military, they're probably watching this debate right now going, I can't believe my luck. I can't believe our luck. Maybe we should attack Taiwan tomorrow. We're going to look back at this episode and just be stunned at what a national security suicide mission this became. So that's a senator from Alaska. He uh, is upset. Are you upset with Tuberville? Listen, the problem we see today can be solved by Joe Biden today. We should not be using federal tax dollars for abortions, period. In no way, no shape, and no form should that be the case. It has not been the case until Joe Biden's administration took office. He is the problem. He also has the solution, period. It is not even a complicated conversation to have. But Senator Sullivan, Senator Romney, uh, said, you just heard from Sullivan, Ernest, Senator Graham thinks Tuberville is picking the wrong, he's punishing the wrong people. Uh, and it's and it's it's hurting our readiness. Do you believe that? I believe that Joe Biden is the problem. Joe Biden is hurting our readiness if there's a problem there. Joe Biden is a person who's derelict in his duties. He understands the objective more than anyone else. He's agreed with that objective for 45, 46 years, and now he's all of a sudden changed his course. The problem can be solved by this administration. And oh, by the way, our military should be focused on lethality, not all of the social challenges that has been brought into the military by this president. Focusing back on lethality, eliminating the current debate over abortion is something the president of the United States can do right this very moment on his own, no action from Congress, just do what the law says. All right, so so you're with Tuberville. He, he is right on his issue. Got it. Um, Senator, lastly, how do you get out of the single digits in these states? People, you're the most likable guy. I can't find some people. It's so hard to find criticism of you. You really got to dig deep. I watched the dispatch. They wrote a story about it. Is a, he's such a nice guy. Is he too nice, essentially? How do you get out of the single digits in these early states and then get catch momentum? You know, Brian, you're, you're right. I have high approvals here in Iowa where I am right now. The goal is a simple one. I am the strongest, most optimistic, positive, yet tough messenger we have. What we've tried for the last three consecutive elections in a row have, has failed. What have we tried? We've tried to be negative. We've tried to be angry. We've tried to be frustrated. And America turned away from us, not towards us. 
We have to have an optimistic, positive messenger who is tough enough. I am that messenger. Brian, you know my story. I grew up in really tough neighborhoods. My friends were, were, were shot, they were buried, and they were incarcerated. You have to be tough to get out of that neighborhood. I got out because I put my faith in the Lord. And he taught me that, yes, there is a thief that comes to kill, steal, and destroy, but he came to give us life and life more abundantly. But being a Christian means that you are tough on your enemies and you're compassionate on your friends and on your allies. That is the kind of leader we need. We need a leader who understands ultimate and universal truth. Upon that, you build the greatest nation, the greatest force for good called America. Our our founding fathers should be celebrated for building a nation on a Judeo-Christian principle and ethos. They were tough. They endured humiliation. They endured losing their fortune because they believed in this nation above all else. I am the kind of leader Mm -hmm. who understands that if we are going to remain the city on the hill, being optimistic means going to work today and enduring the challenges so that tomorrow the next generation of Americans Mm -hmm. have a dream to pursue. I will break through here in Iowa as I continue to go all in. The voters here, my message resonates. They are listening. And I believe in the next 70 days or so, we will have the breakthrough we are looking for. All right. Uh, Senator, best of luck. Um, You know, I've always been an unabashed fan. Appreciate all the times you've been on camera, either talking about history or talking about South Carolina, talking about the military, or just talking about politics. Uh, Senator Tim Scott, I'm glad you're going to be on that stage. God bless. Thank you, Brian. See you soon. You got it. 1-866-408-7669. Your call's next, and I'm going to read some of your comments. And then Jordan Belfort joins us in studio. Don't move. Newsmakers and newsbreakers. Hear it first on The Brian Kilmeade Show. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Remember when Joe Biden told the American people that his son didn't make any money in China? Well, not only did he lie about his son Hunter making money in China, but it also turns out that $40,000 in laundered China money landed in Joe Biden's bank account in the form of a personal check. But that's not enough for everybody. He got... Thousands of dollars. We don't know what he did. I just think a lot of people say, well, he was in private life. Okay. What did you do in private life? In those four years that Donald Trump was president, you were you were no longer vice president or senator. Were you out doing international business deals? And if you were, be proud of it. And then tell me what you did with it. Because you certainly had a problem with Paul Manafort working in Eastern Europe trying to get different Russians elected or Eastern Europeans elected. You had a problem with that when he came back and you had a problem with those exchanges because you said he wasn't transparent about it. For a brief time, he was running Donald Trump's campaign. It worked out horribly. He put himself forward. He said, "I'm going to my main thing is pulling Donald Trump off television so much. That's a little bit of a problem. But he didn't end up in jail because of it, solitary confinement because of it. But for him, Joe Biden, it was just Hunter Biden on crack with hookers doing things. It's about addiction. 
That ship has sailed so long ago when he looked in the camera and said, I had no idea about my son's business dealings. Now you have him in meetings with people, but they want us to believe it's only about the weather. And then they said, where's the money? Now we're seeing the money. Days after he sat there, Hunter Biden sat there and said, my dad's right next to me. Biden's will never forget. You be sure that there's going to be some repercussions if you blow us off again. Next thing you know, they get $200,000 into Joe Biden's account. Is it related? Why has everyone refused to cooperate with his investigation? We'll give you more on that. Jordan Belfort next. Uh, don't move. He's Wolf of Wall Street guy. And we got to find out what's happening in our economy. Interest rates aren't moving. Does that matter? Should. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Hey, we are back. And joining us now is Jordan Belfort, entrepreneur, speaker, and best-selling author. He's got a brand-new book out called The Wolf of Investing, My Insider's Playbook for Making a Fortune on Wall Street. And Jordan, best known for he was portrayed as uh, by Leo DiCaprio on uh, The Wolf of Wall Street. Jordan, welcome to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Thank you. Nice to be here, Brian. Hey, Jordan, before you started... Uh, in finance in your career, I know with the movies can can have to speed up everything. What did you know about business? So um, I, I was like one of those you know kids. I was like a born entrepreneur. I was always starting the business since the age of eight, right? I had a paper out that I was shoveling driveways after snowstorms in New York. That I was a magician doing kids' parties and then made a lot of money at sixteen years old, starting to sell ices on Jones Beach. So it was always starting businesses. So it was in my blood, uh, not in my family's blood. All my parents were both CPAs, so I had a kind of numbers background. But the the, the entrepreneurial side was something that just came from me organically. And when did you say to yourself, I'd love to master the market? So I had started a business uh, in my early 20s in meat and seafood, and I built up this very large company and then just made every mistake that a young entrepreneur can make, uh, overexpanded, was undercapitalized, you know, you name it, I made the mistake, right? Went bankrupt at about 23, and that's when I had heard stories about people working on Wall Street that were making millions. This is back in the 80s. I'm like, no way. It seemed impossible. But long story short, I got myself a job there, and that was when I first was exposed to the stock market, about 23, 24 years old. Um, and I was just blown away by it. I, couldn't, I, I, I did not grow up really understanding that, you know, how much wealth could be created and also all the, the, the dastardly deeds happened on Wall Street. And I think the reason I wrote this book ultimately is, you know, I saw my own family members getting killed in the market in the last couple of years. And, and uh, there's a very simple way to avoid that and to really take advantage of all the value that Wall Street does create, because Wall Street does create massive value. They do. But the problem is they also have the other side where they then, you know, you know, beat you up really badly and churn you and burn you and create bubbles. So the idea is how do you really participate in the market so you can expose yourself to all the great things they do and not get caught up in the nonsense? Now, some people listening to us right now go, I'm not in the market. Uh, that, they, I'm not, that's not me. I'm not buying and trading stocks all day. But they are if they have a 401k, right? I mean, they are if they have mutual funds, they are if they have an investment account. Right. So in the book, I I strongly urge you not to be trading all day and buying and selling and investing in individual stocks. That is playing the sucker's game. That's, in fact, 
the darker side of Wall Street, really. You know, you watch CNBC or whatever, and they're trying to convince you that you should trade from one stock to the next, to crypto, into oil, into bonds. You, that, that is a dead-end game. Unless you're a professional investor at the highest level, and even then, you, you, you're probably not even going to get close to matching the performance of the S&P 500. So the, the, the far better, more elegant way to invest is to simply – there's a couple of different positions you want to own, but they're long-term positions, and you want to be reinvesting your dividends, adding on to these positions slowly over time. And by doing that, you get to extract all this massive value that's being created in the economy while protecting yourself against all the, you know, the crap that Wall Street slings at you and trying to get you to trade short-term and buy options or the next shiny object. So in the book, I lay out this very – it's a proven formula, right? It's a, like the, the best and worst kept secret at the same time of like what, how you make money on Wall Street. So I believe everybody should really be doing this, and you're right, because if you have a, a 401k, an investment account, there, there are stocks in there, but typically those are being managed by a fund, and then you're paying fees and expenses and performance bonuses, and you don't need to do that. It's just, you just don't need to. So this, you're you're, perform, you're you're presenting a formula that you did not subscribe to that got you into a lot of trouble. Absolutely, no, this is like this is the opposite of what. When I was on Wall Street, I was in that chur- wild game of churning, burning, uh, almost public venture capital, right? And I, I would never, like, as an older and wiser man, I would never suggest that someone do that to make money. Now, if you want to speculate, to have fun, there's nothing wrong with that, right? And I lo- I, lo- I speculate myself, but that's not investing. That's speculating. And when you speculate, you can't really count on making money. You'll probably lose more than you'll make if you don't lose everything. So, But it's okay to take 5% of your capital, have some fun. Maybe you'll get lucky. But what I'm talking about is something very different. I'm talking about basically exposing yourself to all the best companies in America. And these are global companies, so you're really exposing yourself to the world economy, right? And you can do this in one simple trade. Right, and put it into an account, a certain type of account. There's tax-free accounts. So mm-hmm. there's a couple of nuances here, but it's very simple. It's like a set-and-forget strategy. And this has been proven academically, historically, to be a far more lucrative way for someone to invest their money for the long term and not get caught up in like trying to time the market. You can't time the market. It's, it's, it's too difficult. And you know we live in, in a world where all the information on every company is available to everyone at the same time. So unless you have inside information, which is legal, then you're, you're not going to be able to beat the market. You're just not. Or if you have lightning fast computers like Goldman Sachs on the floor where you're front running people, right? But we don't have any of them. So my advice to people in the book is to essentially you can expose yourself to all the massive value that's being created because Wall Street does create massive value. The problem is on the other side, they then take it away. It's like a corrupt casino. So not only are the odds stacked against you, but the dice are loaded. So you really can't win. That's when you play for the short term. The way you sidestep all that is by going to the long term and exposing yourself to the biggest companies and then balancing out with another yeah. investment of, of bonds. So it, it, it just historically proven to work. Jordan Belfort, our guest, the new book that he has is called The Wolf of Investing, My Insider's Playbook for Making a Fortune on Wall Street. So, Jordan, I don't, you, know, you wrote the book for a reason. You want people to get it. I understand that. But can you give us an idea of some of the companies you think we can rely on these days? Yeah, so, again, here's something about human beings, right? By our nature, we're really bad stock pickers. So for me to say to you, like, oh, buy this company or buy that, you know, Meta is great, or you have to love Tesla, right? I mean, honestly – 
I, I, they're great companies, but here's the thing. I, I, I don't, you cannot, it's very difficult to pick one company that's going to outperform the market. Because all, like if I sell NVIDIA, which is artificial intelligence, well, guess what? That's already the hottest stock out there. It's gone 300%. So it might seem like a great investment intuitively, but it, it probably the best might be behind it. So the point is, how do you expose yourself to all the best companies at once? And the way you do that is through an index, meaning the S&P 500. So by buying all of the best companies at once in one simple trade, right, you're now exposed to everything. You don't have to play the uh, – I'm going to figure which one is better, which one's right. going to fall from – Right, so buy it all. Right, so – well, you buy it all, but here's the thing. Then you have S&P, the company itself, right, which is 30,000 employees. Their index committee is literally pouring over every company document, every report, and they're replacing the index. So the 500 companies that are there today – are not going to be the same 500 companies that are there in 90 days. There might be one or two that change. And over 10 years, many of them change. So what happens is by buying the index, you're getting exposure to at any given moment all the best companies that are out there in the world, right? They're paying dividends, and you want to reinvest those dividends. And then also by adding a little bit of money each month or each quarter, whenever you can, I'm talking it could be 50, 100, or hopefully more each month, right? You could start off with as little as $10,000 or even less and end up in millions waiting for you when you're ready to retire. That, and that's through the, the process of long-term compounding, dividend reinvestment, and adding a little bit each month to your portfolio. You're not going to do that by buying individual stocks. You're going you're gonna to get whipsawed more often than not. If you'll be right one time, eventually you're going you're gonna to roll in snake eyes and it's over. So this is, the, this is like the ultimate right. strategy, by the way, for the average individual, even the, you know, the wealthiest individuals, right, that don't want to get caught up in the nonsense of trying to time the market and pick individual stocks. But how much so do you much watch the macro economy? How much do you watch, uh, you know, what Larry Kudlow says about where it's heading, what the Fed did yesterday, uh, what CEOs are saying to find out how much to put sure. in? I mean, how much, how much are you glued to this information? I'm glued to the information because I'm interested in the economy for running my, my business and just being a generally well-informed individual. But I would never take one thing Larry Kudlow says and use it to influence my investment decisions. Why? Because I don't invest like that, and you shouldn't either. I really advise anyone not to try to sit there, oh, well, I think we're going into a recession, so I'm going to reduce my stock portfolio. Don't, don't do that. In other words, markets go up. Markets go down. Recessions happen. Expansions happen. But if you look over the last 150 years – Okay, if you just simply stay the course and right. don't buy and sell and don't keep triggering taxable events, you're going to end up making a ton of money because the U.S. economy over time expands. And you can say we have all these problems. We do. There's problems with lots of debt and, and interest rates. But you know what? We're the best bad option out there. And I've traveled all over the world. I've spoken all mm. over the world, mentored people. And there's something about the United States, the work ethic, the entrepreneurship. I, I, I don't think we're going anywhere down. We could go down for a year or two, but I think over the long term, mm. the trend will continue. All right. Interesting. Here's what David Solomon said of Goldman Sachs about the economy. The economy here in the U.S. has certainly been incredibly resilient. You saw the GDP numbers yesterday, which obviously were very, very strong. I do think there's a risk that the economy is a little bit more fragile as we head into 2024. We're watching that closely. Obviously, uncertainty around the world and geopolitical uncertainty, uncertainty can contribute. Um, to a sense of, of confidence or a lack of confidence that can slow economic activity. But for now, the U.S. economy has been relatively resilient. But I think we have to watch it very cautiously, given everything that's going on in the world. So your, your thoughts about his thoughts is similar to yours, right? 
Well, I, I mean, I agree with them. The U.S. economy is in, has been historically incredibly resilient. That doesn't mean we haven't had some bad times, right? Like after 2008, when the bubble burst in, in uh, the tech bubble, the, the dot-com bubble in 99 or 2000, right? And then back in 87, when I first got into the stock market, and then back in the Great Depression. But here's what happens, and this is the mistake that people make. You know, bear markets, right, by their nature, when the markets go down, right? Number one, the stock market is a leading indicator. So you can't say, oh, well, the economy is going down, and, this, and at the, the time my trade's based on what's happening in the economy. They don't necessarily link up together. That's number one. Number two is that bear markets are usually pretty intense, but they're relatively short-lived. In other words, they don't last for like 10, 15 years. Gotcha. Right? Even, even, even the great crash in, in 33, the market in, in five years had recovered all its losses if you include the dividends that we were being paid at the point. So what happens is this. You can you can try to you know engineer a portfolio and be buying and selling and rebalancing and saying I'm going to go into more tech heavy because the economy is good and, and oil because I think oil at the end of the day you're going to be wrong more than you're right because you cannot. So don't do that. Stuff. I understand. No, I understand. I, I hear you. Um, so that that's one thing I think is uh, is interesting. A lot of people are saying this unprecedented is this debt. What's unprecedented is the the big push to get off the dollar. Did either one of those things rattle your cage, Jordan? Listen, they, they, the dollar, no. Getting off the dollar does not rattle my case. I don't think that's really a big risk over the short term. I really, if you still look at the numbers, the U.S. dollar, and I travel all over the world. People love the dollar. They love the dollar, okay? Now, as far as our debt, debt, there's a major issue there. And honestly, I don't know anyone who knows how that's going to be resolved at some point. Okay, but here's what I would say. Again, if you look at the size of the U.S. economy, and also the, just the, the nature of the businesses, our way of forming business, entrepreneurship, right, mm. how we create value here. I, I really believe, and, and again, history doesn't always repeat itself, but it's a pretty good indicator, okay, over very long periods of time. That if you look at, at the S&P, the stock market as a whole, there's a slow, steady march upwards over time. Okay, and that protects you against inflation. By the way, it's the only investment that beats, beats inflation. So if you're in bonds, you need to be very careful. There are some bonds that you can that they're called treasury, they're called inflation protected securities, right? Where you can actually get higher rates when inflation is higher. But generally speaking, stocks, and I'm talking about a basket, the S and P, the best stocks out there are your best bet to protect yourself against inflation, and you don't need right. to hire an expert. Gotcha. This, Jordan, this, real quick, this, on this. Sam Bankman-Fried, can you make sense of what this guy's looking at? Do you, do, you, do you sense this guy's a traditional criminal to you? Yeah, I think he's an arch criminal. But I think he's, to me, he's like a Bernie Madoff type. Because people sent him money, and he just took their money. Like, you know, like it's very, very, very strange. Like you know, people listen. I made mistakes. I went to jail, but I, I never did. Is went into a client's account and took their money. Like we manipulated stocks. I smuggled money overseas. You know, you saw all this in the movie, right? But what we never did is had people send us money and just said, "Oh, let's just dip, dip into the account and just take that. That's our money now, right?" So I don't see how he's not going to get sentenced to a very, very long time in jail. I hope he doesn't get life because I don't think anyone deserves that. Uh, you know, for what he did, I, I think that would be excessive. But um, I, I would be very surprised if he didn't get, you know, 20, 30 years. I'd be surprised. Jordan Belfort, congratulations on your new book, The Wolf of, in, uh, of Investing, My Insider's Guide to Playbook for Making a Fortune on Wall Street Legally. Jordan, thanks so much. Yeah, legally right. That's go. the key. All right. Back in a moment. Expanding your knowledge base. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show.
He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. I think the big question is, does Israel respond? Does Israel try to ignore this? Because Israel does not want to be fighting on multiple fronts right now. And yet, the Houthis are vowing to continue these attacks every day. Missiles, drones. And where is it coming from, Trace? Ultimately, Tehran. The Iranian regime is the head of the snake. Yemen, the Houthis are part of this Iranian ring of fire Mm -hmm. that surrounds Israel on all sides. So that is Eric Sackleback, and he is a terror expert, and he's seeing what's going on right now and where the terrorist university is preying on our guys. I mean, it's unbelievable. We got these, uh, we got 45,000 people in the region, and it seems they're targeting Iraq and Syria, and we have elected to hit back at our time when we are ready. And so far, it's been nothing but target practice. And as I mentioned, for people who did not hear the last hour, I just got an email through regular, not an email, through regular mail yesterday from a woman who's really concerned about her son, hoping we talk about this on the air. My son, along with several other service personnel, whom is responsible with, uh, for, is, is been sent over to the El Sad Air Base oh, in late September. He goes, they thought it would just be a basic part of their deployment. Little did they know that they would be thrown into the middle of a war. They had no business being there, and they're under constant fire. You have the, uh, then tells us we should be talking about it. He says he was also informed that the home base in Kuwait has also seen some missile action. We've known there's been seven attacks since our hit in Syria. We know there's been 28 since October 7th, and we're not doing anything about it. We owe responsibility to these men and women in, in the eye of the storm to fight back. But the only thing we've been doing is showing weakness. And it was brought up to me earlier that, you know, there is a sense of standing up to a bully. But what usually the story with the bully is they're bigger and stronger. We're actually the bigger and stronger people. And we're not standing up for ourselves. And Joe Biden's talking about some type of pause and getting our people. I want our I want our 400 people out of Gaza. I don't know what they're doing there. I assume they have a reason. But 400 people got to get out of Gaza. We lost, although I haven't seen it, we lost 29 people during the attack. And I think between 10 and 14 are being keep, kept hostage it's a big deal. And then you see the anti-Semitism that cropped up here, even though we had nothing to do with this action. And Kamala Harris, she's talking about AI. And guess what? Islamophobia. Cut 10. For years, Muslims in America and those perceived to be Muslim have endured a disproportionate number of hate-fueled attacks. As a result of the Hamas terrorist attack in Israel and the humanitarian crisis in Gaza, we have seen an uptick in anti-Palestinian, anti-Arab, anti-Semitic, and Islamophobic incidents. Okay. There's really been one, there's been a rise of one series of incidents. It's anti-Semitic. You are looking at a administration panicking because they're losing the Muslim vote, which they had 58% of the Muslim vote before, and it's down to 17, according to one poll, Zagbi poll. So now you weave in the nuanced anti-Semitic comments. That is your lead. If anyone goes, if anyone in the Jewish community wants to take it out on a Muslim, let's make it a big deal. But when that happens, you need a microscope to find it. Anti-Semitism is the issue. Incredible. From high atop Fox News headquarters in New York City, always seeking solutions, never sowing division. 
It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to, the, welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. Mark Thiessen standing by and Rich Lowry. We have the, a national review will be coming up in about 30 minutes. We're following all this uh, bizarre stuff in the news. Our Secretary of State is heading over to the region. He's going to meet with the, the various players. The Houthi rebels have declared war on Israel. Of course, uh, Yemen just decides they want to be a part of it. What do they have in common? It's all about Iran. Iran is uh, at, the, at the hub of all these problems. When will I identify that? Uh, let's bring in Mark Thiessen, uh, Mark's former speechwriter, Fox News contributor, Washington Post columnist. Uh, Mark, welcome back. Your Good thought, and now it seems like our administration, through its, a casual comment at a fundraiser, is going to be subscribing to a pause, uh, pushing Israel to have a pause in the offensive? You know, it's, it's amazing to me. Can you imagine if after Pearl Harbor, Somebody, if people had started calling for a ceasefire or for a pause, if after 9-11, someone said, people had said to us, we need a ceasefire, we need a pause. I mean, for crying out loud, first of all, you just had a Hamas leader who do it from the comfort of his, you know, luxury hotel in Qatar, does a TV interview where he basically says, we will do October 7 over and over and over again until the state of Israel is destroyed. I mean, they, they, you know, one of the things we learned after 9-11 was you have to take the words of the enemy seriously. You know, the, the, Osama bin Laden in 1996 declared jihad on America, declared war on America, and, and warned us that he was going to attack us, and we didn't pay attention. And here you have the le- a leader of, of, uh, of Hamas saying we will not stop you know what? until I'll, I'll play is it. destroyed. I'll play it. Let's listen. This is Ghazad Hamad. Hamas's official uh, uh, official spokesperson. Israel is a country that has no place on our land. We must remove that country because it constitutes a security, military, and political catastrophe to the Arab and Islamic nation and must be finished. We are not ashamed to say this with full force. We must teach Israel a lesson, and we will do this again and again. The Al-Aqsa flood is just the first time, and there will be a second, a third, a fourth, because we have the determination, the resolve, and the capabilities to fight. That's it. So I didn't hear I mean, any talk of a two-state solution. Actually, we're playing it right now on television, too. The guy looks like the angriest man in the world. And Trey Yinks told us today he's labeled as a moderate in Hamas circles. <laughs> That's a moderate in Hamas circles. I mean, you know, what you have to realize is this, this, they, Hamas is ISIS. They are subscribers to the same ideology, and they, and they, they, they want to destroy Israel. They want to reconquer all of the Muslim lands stretching from the Middle East to, to Europe. That is the ideology of the Islamic radicals. They, are, they, they subscribe to the same ideology as al-Qaeda, the same ideology as ISIS. Uh, they, they're just another branch of that movement. And, you know, you, we have to take the words of the enemy seriously. When they tell us this is their objective, we need to, we need to accept that. And we need to make our calculations based on that. And what that means is the only way you will have peace in the Middle East ever is if Hamas is destroyed, the way Trump destroyed the ISIS caliphate. You know, you have to remove them from power. You have to take back their territory. You have to make them incapable of carrying out their their objectives. There's no negotiating with these people. There's no peace. There's no rapprochement. There's no, you know, peaceful coexistence. They have an objective, which is to destroy Israel. And Israel cannot exist in peace unless they are absolutely and totally eliminated. And that should be our goal. And the United States should be backing that to the hilt. And, you and know, we don't need American troops wo- to do it. We're getting wobbly. 
Uh, and right away, they're getting panicked. And I think it's politics because yeah. the Muslim community is, is outraged that America would be, supply, would be supporting Israel after they got uh, massacred October 7th. Here's Kamala Harris, cut 10. For years, Muslims in America and those perceived to be Muslim have endured a disproportionate number of hate-fueled attacks. As a result of the Hamas terrorist attack in Israel and the humanitarian crisis in Gaza, we have seen an uptick in anti-Palestinian, anti-Arab, anti-Semitic, and Islamophobic. Do you believe that's fourth? Anti-Semitism is fourth when the uh, when you had the FBI director just say sixty percent of all hate crimes revolve around anti-Semitism, even though they make up two point five percent of the country. Do you believe she just slipped that in? So, so the reason for this is is that the Democratic Party has an anti-Semitism problem. Um, it, it, it is it, they have allowed the 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 nose of the camel under the tent of anti-Semitism, and it's now seeped into their party in a way that it's very difficult for them to extricate. There, there is a poll the other day that shows that 46 percent of Democrats believe that Hamas and Israel have equally just causes. Not, not the Palestinians, right. Hamas, right? Nuts. You've got – there was a poll, Gallup poll earlier this year, 40, 49% of Democrats support the Palestinians while only 30, uh, 38% of Democrats side with Israel in the, in the broader conflict. The, the, you've got Democratic members of Congress who are openly anti-Semitic. And are not sanctioned by or are members in full standing with the uh, with the in the Democratic cause. Put aside Rashida Tlaib's recent stuff about, you know, the lies about uh, yeah. Israel bombing the hospital. She said that members of her fellow colleagues, including Democrats who support Israel, she accused them of being guilty of dual loyalty to a foreign power, which is a classic anti-Semitic trope. And and so this party has been in seat. And by the way, there's right wing anti-Semitism and there's left wing anti-Semitism. They both exist, but they're different because right wing anti Anti-Semitism is a fringe phenomenon. It's the morons in Charlottesville. It's the neo-Nazis. It's the alt-right. That's, that doesn't exist in Congress. That doesn't exist in America. You don't see Ivy League students holding neo-Nazi marches. But it exists. It's in, a, in the left. It's an elite phenomenon. It exists in the halls of Congress. It exists in the elite universities. It exists in elite thought. And so they've got they've got a real anti-Semitism problem on their hands, and they've got to take care of it. They've got to police their movement. You know, they spent a lot of time accusing Republicans of being anti-Semitic and Trump being anti-Semitic and tolerating the alt-right. Guess what? What's happening in the Democratic Party is far worse than the alt-right because it's not alt-left. It's the left. It is them. It is their movement, and they've got to they, they, they've got they've got to deal with this because uh, because it's hamstringing the Biden administration's policy uh, in Israel right now. Well, there's no doubt about it. I mean, Ari Fleischer last night said this is all about politics, and we know too that Senator Schumer is very pro-Israel. He's Jewish, New York. He's got he's the most powerful senator. Why don't we hear from him? Where's his outrage? No, I, I, exactly. But, you know, but here's the problem that the Biden administration faces uh, faces politically. Right. So Arab Americans make up five percent of the vote in Michigan and his support among Arab Americans. He, he got over 50 percent, I think, 58 or 58 percent in the last election. It's down to 17 percent now. It's with and he won Michigan by a, a razor's edge. If that five percent of the vote in Michigan 
doesn't turn out for him, he's toast. And then the other thing is young voters. So the the, the poll came out, uh, the, uh, the Harris Caps poll came out, Harvard Harris Caps poll, that 40, uh, 49%, I'm sorry, 51% of voters 18 to 24 think that what Hamas did on October 7 was justified. And this is this is, so they 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 have a problem with the youth and we have a country as a country have a problem with the youth in America of not understand being morally confused and not understanding what terrorism is. But the, but Biden needs the youth vote to come out mm-hmm. and they don't support what he's doing. So if he loses he loses ground with the youth vote, he loses ground with the Arab vote, American vote. He's toast. He's done. So we know that we're we have these hostages. We think there's between 11 and uh, 15 American hostages. We know we lost 29 in the actual massacre itself. And we got about 400 Americans stuck in Gaza when those pictures went up of the hostages and those who lost their lives at George Mason. Listen to what happened. Cut 15. Doing. Why'd you tear that flyer down? Oh, I was just looking at it closer. Mm hmm. I'm trying to raise awareness for it, and people have been taking down these flyers. I mean, clearly, if you don't know that properly, then you probably shouldn't be spreading Well, can you explain it to me, then? No, I do not want to. So she, she rips it up. She gradually rips it up right in front of him. Listen to, uh, listen to Harvard Square, cut 16. I love Hamas. I think Hamas... Oh, you love a terrorist organization. Interesting. Harvard Square, everyone. That's not anti-Semitism? They should be all exterminated. Every single one of them. And their kids, their mothers, their children. Just like Hitler Thank you for approving our point. Have a lovely night. Racist in Harvard. So there's been huge blowback among donors. I don't have to tell you about Yale. You know about Cornell. The guy's probably going to look at five years in prison, say he's going to slit every Jew's throat. Uh, And his mom says, well, he he deals with uh, depression. Uh, at Cornell, by the way. Uh, so these are elite institutions, and the, between their faculty and, and their confused students, they are really exposing themselves, Mark. What changes? What changes? So, I mean, they have to impose consequences on them. So first of all, just two examples from both of those schools are even worse than what you play. So the terrorists on October 7th launched a hang glider attack on a music festival where these kids' peers – were dancing. These are the kids. The kids their age, their 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 peers, were attacked and slaughtered. Right at George Mason, they had a rally where hundreds of students were chanting, "They have tanks, we have gliders." Glory to the resistance fighters! Literally celebrating the hang glider attack on their peers in in, in Israel. Okay. Second example. You remember that video that came out after the where the Israeli boy taken hostage by and and the Palestinian boys were pushing him around. Yes. You know, that, 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 that filmed by the terrorists and posted up at Harvard the other day, a Jewish student, the, the, the Palestinian pro Hamas activist did the exact same thing to a Jewish Harvard student, pushed him around, surrounded him, started pushing him. The guy who did it apparently is the editor of the Harvard Law Review. The editor of the Harvard Law Review yeah, was heard. literally m- mimicking what Palestinian Hamas terrorists were doing to an Israeli kid I- I- in Israel. These, what we have to do is we have it, it, these the laws. These schools would not admit somebody 
who chanted, who, who marched in, in Charlottesville and said, uh, "Jews will not replace us." Why do they? Will they? Will they uh, admit someone who says they have tanks, we have gliders? Glory to the resistance fighters, celebrating the uh, the massacre. Businesses, law schools would not hire, uh, you know, somebody who is an open anti-Semitic, uh, anti. I'm sorry, a, a, a right-wing neo-Nazi. Why would they ha- hire faculty who say the way who celebrate the destruction of Israel and the massacre of Jews? Why? Why? Do these people are all these people here on student uh, American citizens, or are they here on student visas? If you're here on a student visa and you're openly celebrating the massacre of civilians by a designated terrorist organization, you should be kicked out of your school and thrown out of the country. We need to impose consequences on these people. This cannot be tolerated. I know, and you know, I saw what happened out in the West Coast too when you had the UC system, their version of the SUNY system. If people listen here in New York. Uh, they put out a, uh, a statement from the Ethnic Studies program saying stop uh, referring to Hamas as terrorists. And this is their Ethnic Study Council letter. It's deeply distressing that UC and other higher education institutions uh, sta- issue statements in the last week and a half that irresponsibly wield charges of terrorism and unprovoked aggression, having contributed to the climate that have made the Palestinian students and community members feel unsafe. I, I can't even get my head around that. Jay Soros... I- has written a letter back uh, to this to this group called the whole letter repugnant. Um, he's a regent there. Uh, he said the faculty that should demand that the school that the school retract the statement calling Hamas terrorists. Soros boldly told these staffers in a powerful two-page letter that he was sickened by their statement and the prospect of signatories shaping young minds. That's been a huge blowback. These people have to be fired. I mean, again, if you had a faculty member who was marching in Charlottesville, who was, celebra- who, who, yeah. was, who was celebrating the violence there, saying it was justified, if, it, if you had a faculty member who was a neo-Nazi or, 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 or something like that, they would be fired in two seconds. Why is it okay if you're on the left to be an anti-Semite? Why is it okay if we, because you're on the left to celebrate the death of innocent civilians, people butchered, heads cut off, eyes gouged out. Babies put in ovens. Babies put in ovens. I mean, this is, this is, you know, I, I understand now how the Holocaust happened. I mean, we see it around us. And can you imagine, I mean, I just talked to my Jewish friends and by the way, my, my kids are ethnically Jewish, you know, that, that I told them the other day, these people want to kill you. They, you know, they, you're, you're, you were raised Catholic. They don't, the Nazis, Hamas, they don't care if you're, if you're, if you're, what you, what religion you practice. They care what your ethnicity is. They would, they would kill you in two seconds. And my, my Jewish friends are listening to this and saying, they, I had no idea that these people hate me this much. And particularly progressive Jews, this should be a wake up for progressive Jews right. because you've been marching with these people in support of all these left wing causes. Yep. They would turn around and slit your throat tomorrow. They don't care about your support for the raising the minimum wage and and for you know and for all these uh, you know uh, all these you know woke causes that you've been supporting. They would kill you tomorrow. I hear you, Mark Thiessen. Thanks so much. I'm sure you'll be writing about this. My hope is like I have schools a up today on this. Okay, like Washington Right, like schools. When we got exposed to it during the pandemic, we said, "What the hell are these kids learning?" My hope is, what the hell is happening in this country? And uh, on our campuses. And that may be, maybe, if I can be optimistic, spur massive change. Mark, thank you I so much. So. Yeah, it'll be great. Uh, I'll come back and take your calls in a moment. This is Brian Kilmeade Show. Politics, current events, and news that affects you. Brian's got a lot more to say. Stay with Brian Kilmeade. 
information you want, truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. President Biden has been busy this week. On Monday, he signed an executive order to oversee AI, and there is no one I trust more to save us from the rise of the machines than Joe Biden, as long as none of those machines is a bicycle. Nike is releasing a shoe that's designed to help toddlers learn how to walk. Right now, Biden is like, do you make them in ten and a half? So that was a couple of shots, uh, benign shots of Joe Biden, but they missed the best part, which I can't believe that he didn't know this, and he did, that Joe Biden realized the dangers of AI after he watched Mission Impossible. It was ridiculous. I mean, why would you leave that out if you're Stephen Colbert? He act, no, to be fair, actually, <laughs> Stephen Colbert's, it was brutal. The whole thing was just not funny and really, like, terrible political jokes. His big joke there with the Mission Impossible was the part where the train went into the water and Biden was heartbroken because the train was destroyed. Out of all the jokes you can make, that's what he made. Right. That's why we didn't play it because it was really bad. I mean, the thing that, I think they'd lure Ingram and, and – uh had a better time with it last night. I, the first time I heard it, I didn't think it was true. And then I read this morning. It was. I watched Mission Impossible, and I realized we got to handle this. So now they have a piece of legislation. They sent Kamala Harris over to, to the U.K. to represent the, the administration. And she quickly is now. Do you know that she was heading up AI for the administration? I mean, think about that. Just another easy thing for her to tackle and do a great job right. with. And she said, I needed something to go over. And she's also going to focus on, when it comes to uh, AI, equity. So to make sure this is diverse population that comes up with the leading that keeps us ahead of China on this cutting edge technology, it is really bizarre. But we'll get some reports out of there, and I'm sure we'll see a stilted speech from the vice president, and there may be another, I don't know, Access Hollywood feature because we just watched them try to rehab her again on Sunday on 60 Minutes. At which time she was being spoon-fed questions and said some would say that you are not a good torch holder for the party should something happen to Joe Biden. And she famously, in my view, came back and said, Joe Biden is very much alive. And I don't play parlor games. Yes, you do. Because it's politics. I'm not a political party. Yes, you are. You're in politics. You're making all types of predictions and calculations. Attorney general, senator, vice president, president candidate. Crazy times. Rich Lowry next, Brian Kill Me Show. Uh-oh, I'm in trouble. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. Everything Joe Biden is doing now when it comes to these style of issues is designed to protect him so he can get the votes of the Arab community in Michigan. It has nothing to do with right or wrong in the Gaza Strip. It has nothing to do with supporting Israel, the ally that we need to support. It has nothing to do with recognizing there is no aid for the people of Gaza because it gets stolen. It always has been stolen because Hamas is corrupt. They're thugs. They run Gaza the way the mafia runs any, runs any protection racket. But Joe Biden's got a Michigan problem, and that is motivating and driving so much of the rhetoric from him and the White House. And now they're quickly backtracking off their stellar support of Israel because they're starting to bring up Islamophobia as a major problem. I just played the soundbite from Kamala Harris, Islamophobia. And the fourth thing that they're worried about is anti-Semitism. What planet are they on? Rich Lowry, editor of National Review, joins us now. Hey, Rich, do you want to take Ari Fleischer's theory on at all? 
Yeah, I think that's that has something to do with it. But also, this is just ideological, where they're they're very into Islamophobia, and look, no one wants a, a Muslim hurt or stereotyped, you know, for bad reasons. But there's no rule that every time you mention anti-Semitism, you have to mention Islamophobia, especially when anti-Semitism is more pervasive and, and uh, pervasive and intense, certainly in this moment. So the, the key signal of this was Corrine Jean-Pierre, right, a week and a half ago or whatever it was, asked a question about anti-Semitism and reads from the briefing book about Islamophobia. And I thought that was just her incompetence. But clearly, this this is a, a political and ideological priority of theirs. She apologized. She said she misheard the question. Yeah, I mean, that's, that seemed plausible to me because it was just so bizarre not even to say anything about anti-Semitism and said, read, read something about Islamophobia. But clearly, she heard the question she wanted to hear, right? This is something they want to talk about, and they're not as comfortable talking about anti-Semitism. At a really you know, a frightening moment, we all have Jewish friends like, I don't feel safe. I don't feel safe, safe practicing my religion in the 21st century in the United States of America, which is just an astonishing and disturbing thing. How do you think this plays into 2024? We know in Michigan, the Zogby poll, we don't really subscribe to it here, but they say that the president's lost about 40 points in the Muslim community since this stand for Israel, which now he's walking back and he's beginning to call, I guess, if you were to take a casual statement from a fundraiser, call for a pause. And that's why the Secretary yeah. of State's going over there now. I'm sure the pressure is going to start to come. Yeah, so he's cross-pressured politically. And then also it was just predictable that they'd end up heading to this place inevitably because it's a very conventional administration. And the conventional wisdom a week ago or, or longer turned against Israel said it's going too far, said it has to exercise restraint or has to be a ceasefire or a pause. I don't see what the difference is. You know, the administration opposes a ceasefire but wants a pause. What, what's the difference between the two of those things? Um, it, it just seemed inevitable that this is where they'd end up eventually. Uh, and maybe we should be grateful it's taken as long as it has, but clearly this is where, where the wind is blowing. Um, Rich, how do you think it affects the race on the right? First off, on the left, Dean, Dean Phillips gets in. Uh, he goes into New Hampshire and James Clyburn accused him to not being racially sensitive to to, mm-hmm. to back that off by going into New Hampshire, doing something that everybody has done since yeah, we had the political system. And when Phillips got, when the congressman comes back at James Clyburn, they basically insinuate that he's racist. Yeah, uh, so classic. So just campaigning in New Hampshire now is racist. It's just it's another symptom, of another indication of the constant rede- redefinition of the definition of the term racism to include anything they find politically inconvenient. And when Phillips just says, oh, James Clyburn should know better, then every Democrat jumped on him. Oh, you're, you're showing such contempt for this, this African-American statesman. It's horrible. Uh, I, I think Biden is ripe for the embarrassment in New Hampshire. I don't know whether it's actually going to happen because Phillips is a little um, you know, hot and blowing hot and cold and whether he's really going to make a forceful case against Biden based on age and electability. And there's no there's no ideological difference between the two. So he's really going to have to lean on that if he wants to get traction. Not clear whether he will. But New Hampshire doesn't appreciate being skipped. And Joe Biden is not on the ballot. So it's going to have to be a write in campaign. So if Phillips get any gets any traction, there's a potential that he could really uh, give the president a black eye. Very similar. Uh, very inter- interesting. That he brings it up. And I was just brought up yesterday that. You know, Bernie Sanders ran to the left and caused an uproar. Pat Buchanan ran to the right uh, of uh, Hillary Clinton 
And then last time against Joe Biden, got, they panicked the party. And then remember that Pat Buchanan was way to the right of George Bush. OK, mm-hmm. do you know now to be a radical, you have to be a moderate. This guy seems to be somewhat of a moderate. He's up the middle. He's a self-made success story businessman. Uh, you know, he thinks the border should be bulked up. The, the, a lot of his views are moderate Democrat. And he's looked at as radical now, shaking mm-hmm. up the race with his views. Yeah, exactly. So um, we'll we'll see. He's he's not, um, you know, Buchanan or Sanders. They were really wholly ideologically driven campaigns. The one that uh, dethroned LBJ back during the Vietnam War, Gene McCarthy, go claim for for Gene. Also, you know, clear ideological distinction with Mark McCarthy being anti-Vietnam War at a time when LBJ was prosecuting the war very forcefully. So you don't see that with mm-hmm. Phillips. So I kind of I'm a little doubtful he's going to get the traction, but it's it's possible. All right, um, Nikki Haley's getting a uh, traction, still 30 points from the president, in almost every major state. How does this play out, Rich? You know, it's it's uh, it's a little hard to see. I mean, first of all, obviously the biggest factor is Trump's strength. There's a Quinnipiac poll yesterday has some notable findings about RFK at 22 percent and a hypothetical race against Biden and Trump and winning among independents. I don't think that's sustainable. But had Trump at 64, you know, at 64 percent in the Republican primary, and you might think, ah, above 60, that's got to be an outlier. Then you look at the real clear politics average, he's at 59.3, nearly 60 percent in the average. Now, Iowa looks a little more competitive than that. Uh, and you're going to have this war. It's already started between Nikki Haley and, and Ron DeSantis. Who's going to be number two? You know, a distant number two. And it's just hard to see, even if one of them collapses, uh, DeSantis. You know, about 40% of his support, according to the polls, would go to Trump. You know, so it's not going to help Haley. I think a Haley collapse would help DeSantis more, even though her people aren't into DeSantis. They're not going to go to Trump. You know, if the choice is DeSantis mm-hmm. Trump, and that's always been DeSantis's theory. But look, I mean, we're just—it's just hard to add up the numbers where they're—they're, they're, uh, you know, you need one of them to collapse. It's not clear that's going to happen. And even if they do collapse, it's—it's, it's, you know, it's not clear they—they they can add up to 43 percent where Trump is currently in Iowa. So you still need these two things to happen to Trump to deflate some for no apparent reason, and uh, the rest of the field to collapse and coalesce around one of these candidates. So now that the Republicans have a speaker. They are going to be putting up at about 430 today a proposal to repurpose IRS money and give 14 billion and not compound everything with the border and Taiwan and Ukraine and send that over. So this is the first thing the speaker is going to do. They call him of looking up, looking out for the rich by taking money from the IRS, which is comically stupid. But uh, what do you how does this play out? Because the senators the Senate side is not going to do that, and there's a lot of Republicans that want to put it all together, like Lindsey Graham, and the president says he'll veto it. So how does the speaker look strong and follow through? Yeah, I don't. Th- I, I I get why they're doing this. I, I think all spending should be all new spending should be offset with spending cuts elsewhere. This IRS funding, uh, we don't need it. It's an outrage. It should be cut. Never should have happened in the first place. But I just can't see how they're possibly going to prevail in this fight and won't eventually have to to fold, uh, certainly on the IRS part of it, and then maybe on having separate votes. And I don't care much one way or the other whether it's separate votes or votes together as long as they, they fund fund both. Well, all four, really, fund fund Ukraine, fund yeah. Gaza, fund Israel, fund uh, Taiwan, and, and do more border funding. But I think the, the, it'd be better for the House to, to uh, look for achievable 
um, substantive gains that they they can make. You know, can you make the border funding actually um, uh, pinch by actually having some some rules that will actually be enforced? You know, can you have more transparency that might satisfy some of your guys on on the Ukraine funding? That kind of substantive stuff. I, I just don't think it makes a big um, sense to pull in something else. IRS is not directly related. And then to make a big deal about whether the funding's together or separate. Uh, I want you to hear from James Comer on the investigations that are now starting again on Hunter and Joe. Cut 19. Remember when Joe Biden told the American people that his son didn't make any money in China? Well, not only did he lie about his son Hunter making money in China, but it also turns out that $40,000 in laundered China money landed in Joe Biden's bank account in the form of a personal check. And next, cut 20. We found another check to Joe Biden. That's what the media said that uh, they felt like this investigation needed to do to be successful. Find a direct link between Joe Biden and his family's influence peddling. We've already proven that he met with all the people uh, that sent his family money. We've, we've proven that Joe Biden's lied countless times to the American people about his knowledge and involvement of his family's shady business dealings. We've proven the family had over 20 shell companies. We've had proven they've had all these bank accounts. Now we have enough bank accounts in, Sean, where we can actually trace the money back to the source. So we found the so, check. So here, they're, they're moving on this. And we also know about the 40 FBI investigations that were thwarted when people coming forward, the IRS whistleblowers who were already out. Uh, David Weiss goes behind closed doors, I think, next week. But yet it didn't stop this congressman uh, from uh, Josh... Uh, Jared, Jared Moskowitz from coming out and saying this. Here's the story. I'm going to do the story even quicker than you just did it. Two brothers loan each other money. They pay it back. Not in office. End of story. One brother gives one brother money. The other brother pays it back. No one is elected at all. They're both private citizens. What are we talking about? Yeah. Okay. Oh, well, it could be this. It could be that. We think it's this. We think that. No evidence. We're back to the same thing. Listen, James. So he goes on to to mock James Comer. The $200,000, where did it come from? What exactly were they selling? Just because you're a private citizen, it doesn't mean Mm -hmm. people don't need to know about what you were doing before they voted for you. What you want to say about Trump? You want to know what he's doing? Look at his golf course in Scotland. You want to know what he's doing? Look at his uh, hotel in Turkey. Does that bother you? It might. And you might say, I I don't want to do that. He's got too many overseas interests. That's fine. But he wasn't hiding it. This stuff that's being unearthed and that was denied, I think is problematic. Yeah, hugely. I mean, Comer's right. The, the, the goalposts are being shifted here. It used to be you've shown no direct connection between Joe Biden and this money. Well, now there is. And sure, it was repaying a loan, but maybe the loan is not repaid unless this money comes in. And it's, it's going into James Biden's account. Um, you know, money that he wouldn't have been getting unless he was his last name was Biden, unless he wasn't, you know, um, if you were dangling the idea that he had influence because of his mm-hmm. his brother and his brother's out of office at that moment. But he's recently out of office and he had been one of the highest office in one of the highest offices of the land, vice president of the United States. And everyone knows he might run for president. And even if he doesn't, he's still extremely influential. So this is rotten to the core. It's shocking. And just because we've you know gotten a little used to it, because you know there have been these revelations uh, coming out over the last year and a half, doesn't mean if if you you know roll the tape back two years and said you would have found all these LLCs, you would have found direct checks between James Biden and Joe Biden, you would have Burisma officials said they were bribing them. All that is uh, just incredibly 
damning, and it's inherently corrupt, and there's no sugarcoating it, but obviously they're going to make every effort they can to sugarcoat it. All right, Rich. Uh, so uh, what are you working on? Well, I just did a, a column on DeSantis and Nikki Haley, and then I'm working on something I, I want to write about how 1948, you know, there's this focus about how a lot of uh, Arabs were chased out of Israel, either because of the, the war or because Israelis actually uh, resettled them. Uh, but no one ever focuses on all the Jews, like hundreds of thousands who at that time were chased out of Arab countries. And there's this idea that, you know, Israel's a, a European settler state, uh, colonial state. Well, a, a lot of the population is Middle Eastern, exactly because they were driven from, from Arab countries. And they were driven from these countries, and they didn't become permanent refugees to be used as a political tool for decades and decades and decades, the way the Palestinians were and have been. They were integrated into a successful society. So I want to tell that story. Rich Lowry, uh, one of the headlines now is why Nikki Haley might just become Donald Trump's biggest rival. I don't think there's any question about it. A lot of these, a lot of the news stories are right to her expertise. And a lot of these people that she dealt with for two and a half years with uh, Donald Trump are rearing their ugly heads. Rich, thanks so much. Awesome. Thanks, Brian. All right. The Brian Kilmeade Show. Back in a moment. Both sides, all opinions. It's Brian Kilmeade. A talk show that's real. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. She's one of only seven Democrats in Congress to vote against missile protection for Israel. One of only nine Democrats against condemning the brutal attack on Israel by Hamas. Her legislation would allow the terrorists to rearm themselves. And she refuses to answer even this horrific question. You can't comment about Hamas terrorists chopping off baby pets? Tell Rashida to leave. She's on the wrong side of history and humanity. And Eric, you think the significant thing about this is who actually produced that piece against the Democratic congresswoman from Michigan? That was put out by the Democratic majority for Israel. Wow. You talk about a fracture. They voted not to censure when you have to stand up there and get yelled at and it goes on your record and about hurt your reelection. I guess to about 20 Republicans decided not to vote for censure. They also said George Santos can stay in. But that shows you just a week after the Republicans embarrassed themselves for 22 days by not having a speaker and having eight people blow up and go against the will of 210 getting rid of Kevin McCarthy. Democrats have looked at this fight and the war in Israel and the attack on October uh, October 7th, and they can't get on the same page on this. This is the easiest thing ever, unless, of course, you don't like America, you don't like our allies, you certainly don't like Israel, you don't like democratic societies, and you don't mind speaking out about it and condemning your own president, who now is getting so concerned, he is now calling for a pause in action, which would be devastating for the military action and the quest to break up and destroy Hamas. Evidently, they broke through the front lines of Hamas. They're making great progress. Sadly, to show you how rough the fighting is, they've already lost, they've lost 18 guys. Uh, 18, I, I assume guys, so I don't know. 18 guys uh, going into Gaza. And they're only about five miles in. It's 25 miles deep. So that's pretty significant. Um, and it just shows you the intensity of what's going on. Our guys have been rocketed seven times since, the, uh, since we hit back in Syria. I don't know how much longer we're going to take it. 
I've told you I've gotten uh, an e- a couple of emails, and now I just got one through the mail saying, my son is on these bases. They're getting rocketed a lot more than you would find out about it. We, they feel like they're sitting ducks in the middle of nowhere. And they also said the Kuwait base has gotten rocketed. So unless you have great missile defense to knock out these sometimes unsophisticated drones, which would make it harder as opposed to surface-to-surface missiles, you could be taken out. And worst is, you're not fighting. All you're doing is taking. You're sitting there because you're not allowed to go out and defend yourself. Quick announcement coming up on Tuesday. Teddy and Booker T uh, comes out. The story of Teddy Roosevelt, Booker T. Washington, what they did to uh, to heal the, the rifts in American society. I'm going to be on stage talking about all that. Great patriotic night. I think we need it at the Vogel, November 9th. You can go to BrianKilme.com for tickets. Uh, then I'll be in Ponte Vedra the 10th, on the 11th in the Villages, on the 12th in Vero Beach, on the 14th in Madison, uh, Connecticut, on the 17th in Brentwood, Tennessee, right after the Patriot Awards. Then Chattanooga after that. Madison, Alabama on the 18th, and then Montgomery, Alabama, back to Long Island the day after Thanksgiving, November 25th. Pleasant Beach, New Jersey. You'll get the idea. BrianKillMe.com. Get tickets when you need. Hope to see you in person. Keep it here. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.